So my guest is Alan Drummond. Alan is an associate professor at the University of Chicago in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. His group has a variety of research interests ranging from protein evolution to studying how cells respond to stress at the molecular level. Alan, it's great to have you on today. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So let's get right into it. So um, I wanted to start with like just evolution in general. And um, I wanted to ask, what do you think is like, I guess the biggest misconception um, about like classic Darwinian evolution for people who aren't too much in the kind of evolution world? Sure. Um, let's calibrate a little bit, which is, um, I, I actually teach a course or have taught a course. I did not teach it for the, for the past couple of years, but, uh, but designed with Joe Thornton, a course that, um, that targets biochemists as people who know very little actually about evolution, right? And serves as an introduction to evolution for biochemists and also serves as an introduction to biochemistry for evolutionary bio, uh, biologists. And so when you talk about people who are not really familiar with, with evolution, can you calibrate for me like how broad, <laughs> even inside this, this sort of narrow world of, of thinking about, uh, of, about biology? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's say someone who has never taken like an evolutionary biology Great. class. Okay, so this is, yeah. So. I think the, I mean, biggest misconception is impossible to say. I think that the, the stuff that really um, surprises people initially is that a ton of thinking about uh, evolution has nothing to do with whether organisms are changing in a visible way or not. That is the molecules are changing at a much more rapid rate than what we would call the phenotype or any sort of thing that you would see if you look through a microscope, right, at, at, at cells. So as somebody who works on, on molecules, this is super important for me because I want to be able to take all the stuff that evolution has given us, read out the sort of changes that have happened in sequences over time, and then put that to work in terms of the kind of perturbations that we can make to our, uh, our experiments. But for new people coming on board, there's this like, what is what exactly is neutral evolution, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which inside, you know, once you know a little bit about these things, you're like, oh, I, I see. And there's this whole other thing, you know, has nothing to do with changes in fitness, for example right? Neutral changes in, in your molecules, like mutations that arise, we think of them as, you know, either bad or they turn you into Godzilla, right? And like, no, the vast majority of them, particularly the ones that, that end up contributing to existing biological variation, have very little to zero effect on the observable phenotypes at all. And so that's the, that's the kind of raw material that we're, that we're dealing with. And as soon as you start thinking about the, the huge sweeps and changes and how that neutral variation can then suddenly, you know, be co-opted to emerge into new adaptive changes or how, you know, thinking about uh, if you just look at a, a, you know, a butterfly, for example, the immediate question that most people have is like, oh, what does that do? What does that do? What is that, you know, what is the purpose of these scales? What is the purpose of these particular ridges on the, on the wings? As soon as you start thinking about this sort of neutral changes in evolution, that is changes that have no fitness effect at all, you have to ask this question, does this matter at all? Or is it just a right. side effect of something else? Right. Right. Is this adaptive in any way? Right. Or is it merely hitchhiking along with other adaptive changes? Right. And that's the, that's really the soul of, of evolutionary thinking is sort of big move from what I would call a pan adaptationist perspective mm. that most of us have where everything has a reason, right? Everything has evolved for some sort of reason, realizing right. that is not the case at all. <laughs> and now you can ask the question, how can you tell the difference? Right. So is that, um, so is, is this neutral theory of like evolution, is that separate from the idea of natural selection? Are they different ideas? They, they are 
I mean, here I'm going to get my, myself into like scholarly trouble by, <laughs> by saying something wrong about the historical development of these things. But so, you know, the theory of natural selection, I'm not a historian, just to, just to say, right? Like I'm a, I'm a practicing evolutionary biologist, but by no means uh, consider myself to be an authority on like where exactly the ideas came from and when. But the theory of natural selection was, was sort of Darwin and Wallace's idea of how you could get these amazing forms um, without having some directed intelligent process, right? And it was sort of like an algorithm where if you had heritable variation and so on, right? And you turn, uh, turn a crank, you know, differences in fitness and differences in fitness contribute to differences in survival. Um, and and those, those differences are heritable, that, right? That you just, you turn that crank and then evolution happens. That's amazing, right? It's like a natural selection is the mechanism of evolution. But then you have this, this separate question of, well, if you think of evolution as sort of change in gene frequencies over time would be the classical kind of textbook way of talking about some of these things. Well, now you have changes that don't change the fitness and changes that do change the fitness up or down, right? And they're all subject to the same evolutionary process. They're all subject to natural selection, right? And you can ask the question, what, to what extent any of those changes will contribute to future generations in a way such that we would like find them if we went out into the world and picked a butterfly and said, you know, what's your, what's your gene sequence? And so those are contributors to this natural selective process. And you can ask the question, you can assign what's called a selection coefficient, for example, to every mutation that can be zero. That is, it has no effect on fitness. It can be positive. That is, it has an adaptive, it imp improves the fitness of the organism, right? The mutation then makes it, you're slightly better at, at, at living in your particular environment or slightly worse, deleterious, right? And so you can see there's a continuum. All of those are, are acting together and there are relatively straightforward mathematical uh, models for understanding how those small numerical changes, quantitative changes, then if you turn a certain, you know, models crank, right, how they'll contribute to the future of that population. Right, right, makes sense. So, um, you know, often when we talk about like evolution, there's this idea of there's these random mutations that can affect fitness. Um, what exactly do we mean when we say mutations are random? Is it random in a mathematical sense, in a, in a biological sense? I've always been a little, I guess, confused about that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the you know you know as soon as you start thinking about what exactly do you mean by random, right? <laughs> uh, there's a there's a set of answers to the question which are just like okay what's the nature of the probability distribution for gotcha. example that they're being drawn from but if they're being drawn at some level from a probability distribution the the real claim mm -hmm. that we're making when we say that they're random is that they have no knowledge of what's coming, <laughs> right? They're not. They don't arise because there is some future purpose in, in mind for them. They arise with, with a complete absence of, you know, like a veil of ignorance <laughs> about whether or not um, they're going to be good for the organism or not. And of course, the vast majority of them are terrible for the organism because you're essentially like you're reaching into the, your, your car engine and pulling a, pulling a random wire, <laughs> you know on very rare occasions under certain circumstances, I'm sure that like actually leads your car to be faster because it has now you've broken some regulatory circuit that for most people is important, right. but for your drag racing is actually like keeping you from, from winning. And that would be like an idea of, you know, your, your fitness also depends on your environment. But of course, most of those random changes are just going to cause your car to stop working. And similarly, most mutations are either going to not do anything or they're going to disrupt the normal functioning of your organism and it's not gonna be very happy. Right. So is it possible though, for there to be mutations that occur that would make it such that the org 
it enables it to create other mutations that aren't agnostic to the end result, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is a whole field. This is not my field, by the way, right? And so, you know, if, if your listeners are interested in kind of going down this particular rabbit hole, um, there is questions about evolvability, right? And the evolution of, evolvabil of evolvability. And, uh, you know, one of the concepts is that there are things like your mutation rate, right? The, the frequency with which mutations arise, hmm. which themselves are important contributors to the evolutionary process. And that mutation rate has a molecular basis. Right. You can have a mutation in the say DNA polymerase that's copying the DNA to increase the mutation rate. Now, right, sometimes you might be say under stress, right? And your current genome is not particularly good. And so you'd like to change the mutation rate to make it more common that you would get mutations so that you can escape faster. And of course, this is a sophisticated question because most of those mutations, again, are breaking parts of your engine, <laughs> right? But if you can get your beneficial mutation before you get killed by deleterious mutations, then maybe you win. And so then you get this fixation of, you know, or the, the arisal or emergence of these mutator phenotypes, what are called mutator phenotypes, right? And that's a whole field, right? So you're, the, the question then becomes, can you get, are, are certain systems more evolvable than others? Is there an evolutionary process that leads to systems being more evolvable than other systems? I would say there's no pat answer to this question. It's actually an area of, of remarkably fun scholarly inquiry. A lot of it model-based, very, you know, some of it experimentally based. Maybe thinking about like starving cultures of bacteria under long-term stress and looking at growth advantages that they can have despite the fact that there's almost no growth in those, those environments. So very fun to think about, not my field, but, but yes, you can have mutations that change the, the, the sort of simplistic view of the evolutionary process. In, in so now getting a little more into to your space, you do a lot of work with protein evolution. How exactly do proteins evolve? Like, what does that look like? Are they, do they always remain functional? Is it like a gradual process? I don't know if you had some like simple way to explain it. Yeah, sure. I mean, first, first to characterize the way that I think about, you know, I, I my graduate work was in molecular evolution um, and, you know, have a little bit of a, a, a strange history in terms of how I came up, but, I was, you know, my PhD was in computation and neural systems. So mostly I was sitting around, you know, my classes were all in neuroscience and, and, and computation and things like this. Um, and I fell in with uh, a couple of folks, Klaus Wilkie and Chris Adami initially, and then later Francis Arnold, who, who ended up being my academic advisor. Um, Chris and, and Klaus think about protein evolution and organismal evolution from a kind of physics perspective, very model-based perspective, very conceptual. Francis. Uh, doesn't lack for any sort of conceptual grasp of things, but her main focus is, is using directed evolution to make new molecules by an evolution-like process, right? It's not natural evolution. We control the mutation rates. We control the way that, that, that uh, unnatural selection works, but the principles that are being used are taken directly from the, the sort of what's given to us by evolution. Um, okay, so against that backdrop, I did a bunch of theory work in, in molecular evolution asking questions like why do proteins accumulate substitutions right, in their, in their amino acid sequences at different rates in the same organism, like thousand fold differences in evolutionary rates. That then led me to become an experimentalist or actually not to become an experimentalist, to start a lab, which, which I quickly populated with experimentalists. Um, and uh, we were initially doing cell biology uh, type of work and asking questions about, you know, could we test some of these theories that I come up with as a graduate student? And now my lab is uh, almost entirely populated by biochemists 
who are doing in vitro reconstitution of various behaviors of, of, of proteins, but also asking the question, like, what does it do for the organism? What does it do for the organism's fitness, right? We, we're asking questions like, how do cells sense temperature? And this turns out to be an interesting problem where uh, there are individual molecules in the cell that seem to be responsive to temperature, right? They change the, to, I guess, give a, a preview for maybe some of your listeners, depending on where you're going, because you're, of course, <laughs> you run the interview here. <laughs> but we work on proteins that form huge clumps and then disperse those clumps, right? So this, this sort of uh, condensation and dispersal process that sometimes happens by a process called phase separation, which is, is you know, in, in vogue right now. Um, but that process, you can reconstitute from individual proteins in many cases, right? So you can, in principle, put those proteins in a dish and expose them to the same temperature changes that the organism would be feeling. And you can see the reactions of the molecules that then would translate into the reactions of the organism in the context of the, of the full intact beast. Uh, so in that format, of course, we want to understand how do, say, um, what are called cryophiles and thermophiles differ in their temperature sensitivity. A thermophile is something, you know, like an organism, we work on fungi, um, like yeasts that live in the environment. The, the one that everybody I'm sure knows here is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which makes your bread and beer. Um, but of course there's fungi all over the place. And, uh, there are some that live in hot temperatures and some live at, that prefer cold temperatures, right? And there's thermophile, cryophile. Okay. Uh, and so of course, the organisms have these preferences and you can just tell by growing them on different temperatures and asking how well they like to grow, but they're proteins, right? The individual molecules that they express inside their, their cells also have these temperature preferences. So when we talk about this like temperature induced phase separation process or clumping process, the thermophile, it takes higher temperatures to get the protein molecules to form these large clumps. And the cryophile molecules have this lower level sensitivity. Okay, well, that for us is fantastic. Evolution has now given us molecular changes between these two species and their individual molecules that are in principle informative about what the molecular basis is of this temperature sensitive sensing capability. Okay, but back to the whole trick, most of the changes have no meaning at all, right? Most of them are neutral. And, and many of those changes are not like the single change leads to one degree Celsius difference in, in sensitivity, right? Like, the, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if it were that easy? But of course, you know, proteins fold up like origami. They have all these sorts of interactions. You can ask about second order interactions and tertiary interactions and so on. They form complexes with each other. So, you know, it's, it, it, if you have, you know, eight different, different mutations, then you have two to the eighth different possibilities between two, you know, a cryophile and a thermophile, for example. And as you can probably tell, as the number of sites increases, that number increases exponentially, right? So you really end up with this problem of like, okay, how do you properly learn from this evolutionary information to go tell what changes we should actually make and study in detail to understand how are these molecules react to temperature, which then tells us how the organisms themselves respond to temperature. Right, that's fascinating. So what, what exactly determines like uh, how and why, how quickly are, and even maybe why a protein evolves in the first place? Sure. I mean, one, one way to think about this is just, if you have a, like, let's just imagine the case where, where we'll, we'll, we'll take the case that I think everybody's familiar with first. <laughs> which is if you have a, um, a protein sequence, and let's say that that organism is not 
perfectly optimized for its environment. In fact, you can pretty easily demonstrate to yourself that like it's, it, it is from an evolutionary perspective, extraordinarily unlikely for any organism to be perfectly optimized for its environment, which basically tells you there's like limitations to the power of natural selection to achieve molecular perfection, right? Like they're, they're, the finer the differences in fitness are, the harder it is for those things to then take over a population uh, and go to fixation. But just imagine you have a protein sequence, a mutation arises, that mutation makes you grow 10% faster. And let's take, you know, fitness here is just going to be growth rate. We can think of things as exponentially growing, forget about limitations from the environment and nutrients and so on. We're talking, let's say about bacteria where individual cells are individual organisms, right? And you're just asking, what's the fate of that mutation? Okay. So it arises in one organism, typically, right? One member of the population is the conceptual way we think about it. In a large enough population, of course, there's going to be many, many mutations sort of coexisting, but we can just focus on this one. Uh, it's 10% better, which may not sound like a lot, but in the next generation, then you'll have on average, you know, 10% more offspring. And you can imagine if you turn that crank a few times, right? 10 generations, hundred generations, and you're 10% better every time. Well, so long as your population size is ultimately fixed by some, you know, nutrient limitation, or like number of atoms in the universe, you've done this, probably this math in your, <laughs> in your head, which is exponential growth pretty, pretty quickly um, takes over uh, the known universe in terms of <laughs> the number of available molecules. Okay, so if you have that sort of constraint, that 10% faster is going to quickly mean that your nearest competitors are gonna be extinguished. They just run, you know, right? They, they go away because you have, uh, you know, every single generation, you have slightly more offspring right? And, and ultimately by necessity, they will have to have slightly less. Okay. That's the sort of super naive way of thinking about it. Now, the first thing is to realize that the organisms are not deterministic. And so really this fitness is like, well, on average, if you took a large ensemble of these populations over time and you evolved in, in this way, this would be the average effect, but we don't want to observe the average. We observe an actual realization of this sort of stochastic process. And so what happens to most things, if they are 10% better, is that, well, there's just statistical fluctuations. The most likely thing for to have happen is that that organism dies and doesn't leave any offspring at all, right? If you imagine that there's just N organisms and like everybody like reproduces and you're 10% more likely um, to, to have two offspring, but you're just as likely to have like zero offspring, right? Okay, so th there's this first initial process, which is what we call in the field establishment. You have to get a subpopulation that's large enough so that this deterministic effect can start taking over, right? Where now you're unlikely to lose the lottery um, or your, yeah, I mean, it's a terrible analogy. The lottery is not the right way. <laughs> you're unlikely to lose this coin flip <laughs> 10 times in a row, even if you're 50% likely to lose it once. Um, so you have this establishment process. That already gives you this idea that this statistical process ends up being important, right? So you can ask how big are the fluctuations that you have to have in the population in order to like, where you have to care about these effects. And here, the really simple thing is if you have N organisms, right, a population of size N, then your fluctuations are about of size uh, one over N. So if you're, if you're in a very, very large population, you can think of like, you know, if, if 
okay, if you're if you're a graduate student, for example, <laughs> the math that I think most people are familiar with is your advisor going, you need to do more replicates, right? And the reason you do more replicates is because it reduces the noise in your your calculation of the mean, right? Of some particular effect. And why is that? It's because the variance of your, the standard deviation is actually not changing, but what you, what you want is the standard deviation in your estimate of the mean. And that goes like the, the standard deviation over square root of N, right? The number of measurements you have. Same exact thing happens in populations. If you have just one individual, the fluctuations are killer. But if you have 10, 100, whatever, right? Those fluctuations scale like the sigma over square root of N. Okay, so in a very large population, the deterministic effects really uh, dominate over these uh, the sort of resolution of, of, uh, of, of evolution is, is much better in these large populations, which means that you can then have these tiny, tiny changes in fitness in large populations, which may seem small, but are actually decisive over evolutionary time. So if you think about the organisms that we, um, my lab works on like budding yeast, or organisms that people have probably heard of like E. coli or Drosophila, right? Model organism type of things. You can ask, what is the N, size N, that characterizes the evolution of those, those species? And that's, that's known, it's called the effective population size. It's one of the most important numbers in, in, in evolution. And it tells you about the size of fluctuations. Fluctuations go about like one over N. So the effective population size of budding yeast is something like 10 to the seventh. So what that means is that like fitness effects that are better than one in what, a bill, uh, 10 million, something like this, right? Yep. That change fitness in, of, of that same order are going to cross the threshold and then be visible to natural selection. Now, if you think about it, right, a 1% fitness advantage might seem small to you if you're in the lab trying to measure it. it certainly seems small to me. A 0.1% fitness <laughs> advantage strains current technologies to be able to, to actually see it. Evolution can see orders and orders and orders of magnitude below that, right? This super fine grained distinction between um, tiny, tiny selective changes that are happening in, the, in these organisms, in part because the population sizes are, are big and in part because then the timescales are extraordinarily long. Because you can imagine if you, this, you have this wave-like propagation of this, of this new mutation through a population, the larger the population is, the longer it takes yeah. Okay. So this gives you some, <laughs> some idea of like, it's a very rich subject. There's a lot going on, um, but we are dealing with, with changes in these populations that are potentially extremely subtle and sort of going into the lab and hoping that we're going to see some big change right, and try to learn something from it. Right. Right. So I guess like when we think you know, we're talking about molecular evolution, like the protein level, how does that manifest at the maybe like organelle and then the cellular, cellular level? Like, is it just applied molecular evolution or is there like more to it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I apologize. At some level, I lost the thread of the, of the, of the previous question, right? So let's, let's try to do it quickly and then we can come back. So the, the, the basic idea here is what's called the, the genotype phenotype map. So there's changes in the gene sequences those then propagate through multiple levels of biological organization up to some, you know, some, some important behavior of the organism. So like the ability of uh, E. coli to eat sugar, for example, is some large scale phenotype that we can, we can imagine. Um, like you drink a glass of milk and there's lactose in it. 
so then there, there are proteins inside E. coli that are responsible for breaking down lactose, like beta-galactosidase and things like this. So those proteins are enzymes, right? They, they catalyze uh, reactions. And if you change the sequences of the proteins, well, then they usually work not quite as well, but sometimes they might work better or sometimes they might, in rare circumstances, change the substrate specificity of the, of the enzyme and allow you to grow in some weird new sugar, right? That is suddenly present in the environment that wasn't there before. And so that's, you know, a new adaptive opportunity that's available to, to E. coli. Okay. So where did those changes in the protein come from? They came from the changes in the genome that had happened. So here you have at some level, a, a, an understandable link between what the gene sequence is doing to the behavior of the organism mediated by proteins. And we're interested in well, what can you learn about the, if, if you made random mutations in the, in the, in the proteins, you know, what, what would you see in terms of like, are there parts of the protein, amino acids in the protein sequence that are more important than others, right? Evolution will tend to not tinker with those important residues, right? The particular parts of the active site of the enzyme that is responsible for actually doing the chemistry as opposed to the scaffolding that's holding the whole enzyme together or mediating its interactions with other things in the cell. Right? So if you tinker with the active site, the thing doesn't work anymore. You're like, ah, we're unlikely to see that mutation in nature because those things would be dead, right? <laughs> right? They're not able to eat sugar. So it's like a simple sort of pattern. If you, if you look at then a, a huge number of sequences that you get and you say, ah, at this particular site, I only ever see serine, right? I only see one type of amino acid. Like, huh. Despite the fact that I see tons of changes all throughout the rest of the protein sequence, right? Like some are, you know, some sites are changing more than others, but the few sites where they're, like, they're absolutely conserved. That's the thing, the thing that people like to say. Well, it's, it's a hint that evolution really cares about this. That is anything that didn't have a serine there is dead because it turns out this is a serine protease that relies on serine in, in order to do its particular chemistry. And so then the game becomes, all right, well, what if it's not absolutely conserved? What if there are a couple of choices? Uh, there's a serine or a threonine, but then nothing else, right? No other types of amino acids appear there. Oh, okay. Maybe that's a phosphorylation sites, right? And possibly, you know, you can see how the, how the stuff goes, but of course the natural, the idea is that the natural variation is going to tell you something about what might be important in those sequences. And the trick is like really trying to back out uh, this information under murky circumstances. Right, right. So one thing also I was kind of worried, I'm wondering about, and it's kind of maybe somewhat unrelated to what we're just saying, but the fact that culture evolves like so quickly and societies are constantly changing and how we few things or what we consider to be good or bad or whatever, right? Like right. how does that tie into, yep. to biological evolution, I guess? Well, I mean, it's just, it's just nice that we, you know, for, for cultural evolution to happen, we don't have to die. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the big thing about, um, uh, about evolution of gene sequences, of course, is that it, the changes that happen, happen generationally because of this, the, you know, most of the mutations are arising, you know, in, in you and me, and we're either going to pass it on to offspring or not, but there's no sense in which the mutations are changing our behavior, right? Of course, there are mutations that happen in our tissues and things like this, and they cause things like cancer. And, but these are typically not like what we think of as adaptive mutations because they don't change the operation of our entire bodies, right? That's done through the germline that's done through the egg and the sperm. 
and you know in bacteria it's just going like through the genome right so every generation you get a chance to to, to change yourself or build yourself anew uh, but for cultural evolution of course you can just make a good argument and change my mind or you could make an argument that may not be very good but is very memorable and that might also change my mind right and now take that to its logical conclusion you have memes and things like this and this has been been done to death uh, by people who who actually think about such stuff <laughs> i think it is you know the evolutionary analogy is imperfect there and certainly in my day-to-day -day work i don't spend any time thinking about what i could learn from from cultural evolution in terms of like which mutations I should make or we should think about making in the in the lab. Sure yeah sure it's certainly not a problem for yeast yeah um so also I was actually just um reading this paper recently uh Carl Willis's paper a new biology mm -hmm. for a new century um and I, and I found it super interesting and um you know like big thing is like there's an emphasis on there's too much of an emphasis on on mechanisms and He's asking his biology, you know, becoming too much of an engineering discipline. And I, I can just like share a specific quote for the audience. Yeah. One thing that I liked, he said is, knowing the, the parts of isolated entities is not enough. A musical metaphor expresses it best. Molecular biology can read notes in the score, but it can't hear the music. So do you agree with this? Do you think biology as a whole is overemphasizing mechanism too much and we're not thinking about evolution enough? <laughs> I mean, I have to say that I think people this is a, just a fun battle that people like to have. And it is, it's a meaningful one, but trying to characterize it as like, oh, biology is too much this and not enough this. Uh, do I really want to wade into that? I do, <laughs> you know, yes, there is a, there is a sense. Um, let's first take the, the ground floor thing, which is the reductionist approach that, that people take, that I take, right? To try to understand the large scale behaviors by going down to the levels of pieces and parts. That is, has been enormously successful in a lot of ways, but it's been known for the longest time. And if, you know, for your listeners, um, the, the really inspiring paper that comes out of physics that many folks have kind of gravitate to when they are grappling with these issues is uh, um, uh, Phil Anderson's paper, uh, More is Different. So it's, a, it's a effectively uh, one physicist's very compelling argument <laughs> that once you get down to the parts lists and you understand all these little individual things, it doesn't actually then lead to an immediate understanding of the behavior of the whole. And so, and he like lays out a bunch of ex examples, but so in my own head, the clearest way to talk about this is let's talk about water molecules, right? You know, water, I know water. You study a water molecule which is the obvious component of water, right? Like there is nothing else <laughs> besides water and the vacuum, okay? So what is it about this, you know, the study of an individual water molecule or the understanding of the protons, right? Or the understanding of uh, the electrons or the understanding maybe of the quarks <laughs> that are sitting inside these things, right? What is it that really leads to an understanding of water? And hopefully, you know, you, you already know, the answer is nothing, right? They, they tell us nothing about whether water can splash or wet, right? Or drip or do any of the thing or flow, right? Do any of the things that we, that's not how we learned about water. It was not a reductionist process that got us, that got us there. It turns out that there are just these levels of what are called, what's called emergence, right? Levels of description that are somewhat insulated from each other such that there is effectively nothing 
that can be discovered about water now, about the details of how water is put together at the quantum level that will in any way meaningfully change our understanding of how water itself, the substance works. This is the this sort of insulation that, that Phil Anderson talks extensively about. And I think this is a really important point, right? You can be as reductionist as you want, but this illusion that somehow it's going to tell you about the higher level behaviors of the system is false in many cases, many important, like crucial cases. And it's that understanding of the emergent process, right? And the articulation of, of examples of emergence, right? This like birds to bird flocking, like how much do you understand about bird flocking if you just study a bird? The answer is not very much, right? How much do you understand about the organization of a cell by isolating a phosphorylation of serine 246? The answer is not very much, right? <laughs> like, yes, there can be phenotypic consequences, but that's not how you put the whole picture together, right? You have to be doing this multiple level thing, which is, you know, so my lab takes this integrative approach very seriously. And like we you know, studied the growth of the organisms and we go all the way down to reconstitution of the things in vitro. Now, the let's get to, that's that's the sort of bedrock stuff, right? I think this is this is true, and the, the emergence is the is is the first answer to why just simple reductionism is not enough. But you ask the cultural question, right? Are people too concerned about mechanism? And here I'll say, you know, my path as a scientist has very much reflected this sort of uh, tropism toward acquiring reliable information about biological systems. I started as a theorist. I switched from working with physicists to working with Francis, who is a uh, Francis Arnold, who's a, a you know biochemistry plus chemical engineer. Actually, was trained as, as a chemical engineer and, and still is a very proud chemical engineer. Uh, in part because the physics stuff was too conceptual, and I realized that the physicists were, in many cases, talking mostly to other physicists, and I wanted to talk to biologists. And Francis had a system that would allow you to talk to biologists. Okay. So, you know, you do directed evolution for a while and I'm like, uh, okay, I'm doing theory stuff that is talking about molecular, you know, big patterns of molecular evolution, but I don't know, those are theories. And at some level they should make testable predictions that go, at least for me, it's not necessary. They should make testable predictions that extend beyond the, the, you know, download another sequence and see what you see in that sequence. Right? There should be I felt that there should be consequences of these particular ideas for, for extant systems, right? So got a fellowship, built a lab, started doing experiments to try to test those hypotheses. Cell biological stuff, proteomic stuff. And there I was like kind of dissatisfied because we're working at this high level of description. And you're always wondering, you know, if you study a stress responses, which is what, one of the things that we were doing, those things are complicated. If you have some idea about how they work, you would like to kind of go do detailed tests. In the end, I was actually trained as an engineer, right? I, I do believe the sort of engineering thing of like, you don't truly understand something until you can engineer it. You know, it's, it's a little bit pat to say that, um, but still like, you know, I like that idea. And it, as I was looking around the literature, I'm like, well, the stuff that's being done in mechanistic biochemistry, a field in which I have zero training, seem to be producing some of the most reliable information in the life sciences. And like, I read those papers and they're just rigorous. Like, I believe that these are properly controlled experiments. They're reconstituted from purified components in vitro, right? 
the good papers then like take the things that they discover in in vitro and they go back to the cell and like you know the, you 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 close the entire loop i'm like that's how science should be done okay now i think a lot of people think that <laughs> right and it becomes a fetish to then ask for that sort of mechanistic rigor from every study that's bs <laughs> right so now, you know, like everybody else, like we'll go off and we, we see some behavior in the cell that we think is interesting. And, you know, we don't even think about trying to, to publish a paper that says, oh, we just, uh, we've observed this thing because we know that the kind of rigorous reviewers that we have grown up with are like, well, but you don't understand it. Why is it? you know, if you're just observing things about, about biological systems, aren't you just stamp collecting? And it, at some level, that's a reasonable question, right? If you filled the world with just like, we made a, yet another observation of a biological system. You're like, what did, what exactly did you learn? You know, a little bit more is required. I know there's a, you know, some set of people are like, well, you just publish everything. I'm like, yeah, people, <laughs> the filter is really important here, right? <laughs> We're being buried underneath yeah. like mounds of information. It's like, it's sequencing, but for papers, right? right. Like the, the proliferation of information is so high right now. I continue to be like, okay, I'd rather read a, read a paper that has a more complete story. I'd rather my lab produces things where like we've taken the time to really understand what's going on. And we're like now giving people a really detailed view. Like we went off into the wilderness for seven years and here's what the team found here you go like that to me you can create huge amounts of value that you don't get from um and like this kind of ties into the mechanistic stuff or that you that you don't get from just like publishing every observation as it arises so yeah i think there's a there is a cultural thing where people are always battling and i think the the, the pendulum has swung way over into this you know, you have to have mechanism then people arguing about, you know, one person's mechanism is another person's description, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, have you really done the quantum simulation that, you know, shows like, of course, it's all, I, I, I mean, maybe this is a detail, but, but there is a level of mechanism where you're like, okay, this then beyond this level, it reduces to things that are not specific to this system, right? Like whose behavior we understand relatively well, it's not true that there's sort of no end to the mechanistic thing, right? You can actually just say, ah, the rest of this is just like, we know how kinases work, right? This, we're not going to discover anything new about this. That's all you need right. to do is like this kinase, kinases work in this way. And if you have a kinase work in this way against a substrate, it produces everything else that we have reported. Mechanism. That's fine. That's satisfied. Right, right. And that's very interesting. Um, so I kind of wanted to now get into more like the human side of science. I mean, we're kind of already there, yeah. but um, a little more even into it. So, you know, I've seen, you know, a couple of your talks and I think you give these just amazing presentations, just the way you present the scientific story is I think just fantastic. Thank you. Um, and also I'll share this, um, just, a, just a short passage from your PhD thesis that I was reading that I thought was, was really nice and well-written. I mean, and this is the context of directed evolution. So I'll just read it out for the listeners. So Alan writes, by alternating diversity generation, often through random mutation and recombination, with selection for desired properties, we can improve proteins without having to understand the details of the sequence to function mapping. Such a shift may seem positively Faustian. We may obtain engineering results, but only by forfeiting our scientific soul, the imperative to understand why. 
but such a trade-off is illusory. So, I mean, just, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> so, like, I did not expect to have my, my PhD thesis <laughs> read in the podcast, but, but I appreciate it. So, I mean, like, what do you think, I guess, is the role of like storytelling and like good communication and science? And I guess also, how do you maintain the balance between being engaging, but also rigorous at the same time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the first thing is that, that honesty is the soul of what we do. And I think the, the, the way in which people get kind of wound around the axle is that they think of storytelling as at some level, you must be dishonest. And, you know, I think the first thing to do is just challenge yourself. Does that need to be true? Really only sharing selected details, all of which are true, right? Is something that we do anyway. I cannot tell you everything, right? <laughs> I I can't tell you everything that we did in the lab, right? What you see in the paper is just the tiniest, tiniest fragment of a sliver of the tip of the iceberg of the thing we actually did and all the stuff we saw along the way and all the blind alleys we went down. Okay, so we're gonna be selective about this stuff. So you know, what, what are we really doing here? We're trying to communicate information, right? The part of the science is you go off into the wilderness and you find something. The second is you have to show people, otherwise it's not really science. Really science, what do find? It's not, it's not useful, you know, it's just sitting around and like polishing the, the one true ring, right? It's not what we do. You have to like, so how do you get into, into people's heads? And there, like, we're humans. This, I think, is the kind of bedrock insight. We're not communicating with robots. We're communicating with humans, okay? We are just like barely past, we're primates, okay? <laughs> <laughs> just to like the level, I, I got a, I got a, uh, uh, one of those combination printer scanner, you know, copier things. And I, I, I open the box, right. And look inside the box and reach in. And there's this packet of, of silica, right. That they use to make sure the thing, you know, stays dry. Right. And what, what does it say on it? It says, do not eat. Right. That's what you have to worry about with humans. It's like their first instinct is like, I want to put this in my mouth. Right? <laughs> We're animals. Okay. So how do you communicate with animals who have emotions, right? Who have att attention spans and they have limited short-term memory. And then, you know, we have, we're just like all these features that, that are, are part of the absurdity of being human. And like, so talk to a human, tell them something that is engaging. And so that gets to the, you know, it's not a, it's not a story, like it's a fairy tale, but it's a narrative that you can follow. Like, what is your question? Why should I care about it? Like all these questions that everybody gets asked and just brutalized within their committee meetings as a graduate student are the right questions. <laughs> what is it that you're working on again? Please orient me, right? Take me from 100,000 feet down to your system and kind of give me a few signposts along the way to like, so I can just know where I am even. And then what are you working on? Why is it interesting? You can, you know, this is not a for writing a paper so much, right? Although well, you can do some of this, but like for giving a talk, I give a class on giving effective talks. And we talk about, you know, how is it that you can get your audience interested? And there are, there are many ways to do it, right? One of the ways to not do it is to say, this subject is intrinsically interesting. No, it is not. <laughs> Nothing is intrinsically interesting. I mean, it might be interesting to you, but that's not an intrinsic property of it, right? Like, uh, but you can even use things like, I am enthusiastic about this. And so your human audience will pick up on that. And they too, because we, we are empathic creatures, right? 
we'll, we'll be like, well, okay, I'll come along with you for a little while, at least on just that energy alone. You don't need to do a bunch of intellectual defense of like why I should care or whether this is going to cure disease. Like, I just love that you're happy about this. Right. So try to share some of your excitement. Okay. So all those, you know, you use the, the emotional tools, you use the narrative tools, you use the sort of logical structure tools. The attention tools are really important. Like the most valuable thing that your audience has is their attention, is their time really, right? But attention is just one step up from time. And so how do you not waste their time? How do you guide their attention to the most productive places, right? A lot of this stuff of like making sure that you're not misspelling words or that all your lines have the same width or that you're using a consistent font. Like they may seem silly, but like the principle's really, right. really simple. You're just guiding, you're making sure they don't spend any time paying attention to that stuff and wondering why it is that way. You make it as boring as possible so that the attention gravitates toward the story that you're telling, the data that you're showing, right? The conclusion that you're drawing. And like all of that stuff, I think is hugely important, right? It's just being obsessed with your audience, right? Right. It's not about you. I like to tell my, my students in yeah. the presentation yeah. class, it's about your audience. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. I don't think we, in general science, people think about that enough, but it's, it's just so important. And especially when I see like someone like you, it's like, you're just grouped to your seat. So it's, it's, I think it's something we can all work on more. Um, so I'll, I've like the super just weird and interesting background, right? So after you, first off, you were um, a mechanical engineering major in college, and then you worked at um, a software company, a trilogy for several years, and you were in charge of their employee boot camp. Okay. So I wanted to actually ask about that. So first off, why do most employee orientations or like boot camps or bonding events or whatever, why do they just suck? Because they're generally not fun. <laughs> like, why does everyone make a bad boot camp? Why, why aren't people making better oh, boot camps like you? I mean, I don't know if they're all bad. There certainly are bad ones and good ones. I, I do think that like um, this, this comes to sort of the, the training aspects. And, and here, I mean, there's many ways to, to enter in here, but the, so I spent seven years at this, at this company, Trilogy is a software company that sold, uh, sold very complicated software for sales people to the fortune 500 I mean, companies like HP and Boeing and so on. Um, and so you might think, well, that's the most, most boring thing in the world. And at some level, like, well, also what you do every day is completely boring and that's not why you're why you do it, right? You do it because you're working with amazing people or you're doing it because you care about the ends of the thing rather than the means. But this, this company was an incredible place to grow up. I was surrounded by absolute geniuses um, and leaders who just changed my scope and scale for like how to address problems and how to talk about them and how to think about like what your you know, life is supposed to mean and what a company is for and what products and selling are. Um, and one of these guys, uh, Jim Abel, who is the VP of HR, just transformed my uh, understanding of just simplicity. And, and also, <laughs> uh, you know, he's a, he's a vice president of human resources. I was working for him. By the end, right, I was a director of human resources. Strange career path. I started as a computer programmer and then like you know, wound my way through this thing and ended up director of Trilogy University, this, this boot camp that you're talking about working for the vice president of HR. So myself formerly in HR. Uh, and Jim was, you would think, you know, VP of HR must be the most boring person in the world. He was incredible. What an incredible leader. What an incredible like thinker about how organisms, uh, organizations behave and just the basic principles. He's like, everybody thinks the answer is training. He's like, the answer is training. What kind of training? On the job training. 
If you want to train somebody, you train them on the job. Now, occasionally, occasionally there will be times when there is a, there's a role for a training class, which is the first thing everybody thinks about and should be the last thing that they think about. But there are occasions when that is, that is necessary. Like when does training actually matter? Well, it's when you make a transition from one stage of your career to another, right? And, and right after you make that transition where you are failing, you don't understand why. <laughs> You're at sea, you understand the problems, but you don't know how to solve them. You're completely hungry for like, oh, help me swim here, right? That's a place where a short training course can make a huge difference. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why, you know, the, the bootcamp is an appropriate time to do these things. It's short. You, you've just made a huge transition. That is you joined the company, right? Right. But then what do you, what do you, what is it that you're supposed to learn? Right. So, I mean, I, I will, I will slag my colleagues at the University of Chicago just a little bit in a very good natured way, which is we have, <laughs> we have a, um, uh, or have had historically, I mean, the pandemic has disrupted everything, but you, you, hopefully your listeners will understand, um, we um, are we have a relationship with with uh, the marine biological laboratories out in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and this is a place where it has a long tradition of doing like, incredible biology, not just marine biology but molecular biology and and, and so on. And it's a change of of scenery, obviously from Chicago, <laughs> and it's a really cool place to be. You know, has a little drawbridge through the middle of town, right? Where you, so if, I don't know if you've ever been there, but but it's a special place, and. Uh, we developed this bootcamp program where we'd send students out there and they would just learn a bunch of skills like computer programming and so on. And I'm, I have to say, I'm looking at this thing and going, okay, you can teach, you can give them a bootcamp of like the set of skills that they're going to need to learn at the university of Chicago, but let's be clear of what's really happening here. This is a bonding exercise. The most important thing that these people are doing is learning who each other is, right? And, and talking to each other, like building relationships that are gonna power the rest of their career at the University of Chicago. Don't coop them up and teach them programming. I mean, yeah, give them an on-ramp for that at, at some point, but that's not the purpose of the, of the thing. So you know, one of the things that we did at, at Trilogy to give you some, you know, there was a there was a kind of deep understanding that this really was what we were doing, right? The the the, the boot camp had a, a purpose, which was to build the a, a, a yet another nucleus inside the company that would be incredibly strongly bonded to itself, and then send that off into the company to transform the way some wing of the of how we did um, business worked. Uh, and one of the first things that we did was we would sit around. We did what were called C's, significant emotional experiences. Okay. Small group, everybody has to share and people just go around the room and talk about some significant emotional experience that they'd had. And this is, you know, a group no larger than 20 people, right? All of whom are going to be around. And, you know, some people don't take it seriously and, uh, and you know, tell some sort of funny story. Um, but you get somebody who, who takes it, who does take it seriously and tells a searing story about something that happened to them, not looking for sympathy, just trying to explain something that, you know, that occurred that, that helped them become who they were, making themselves vulnerable. And, you know, we'll sit around and go, I'm not going to tell you any of these stories, of course, but like the rest of the room, you can imagine is just wrapped and astonished 
and maybe delighted, right? Like, there's these things are not always sad or you know, <laughs> they they sometimes have like strong positive valence, but you are coming along with that person, you know something about them, and you see that they're making themselves vulnerable. So the next person who goes after that first one, right, who sort of breaks through, reveals something about themselves. And you do that, you know how this goes, right? You, you can see. Suddenly, this group is like, we are us. Everybody else has never been through this process, right? We are, we're special. We're bonded. We're, we, we will always remember this story. You know, if we get wasted some night, we might like bring it up again, right? But it is, a, it, it is the kind of experience that is transformative to a working team, right? But like, imagine, like, we're talking about a company here. A company's job is like make products and sell them to, right. to customers. But this was the idea, right? Like we want to build a company that works differently than, um, than other companies. We want to build the next great American company. Um, and, you know, it didn't, it didn't actually turn out that way. But if you track the alumni of Trilogy, mm-hmm. they have gone off to produce, I mean, they're CEOs and partners and whatever. It's like, like they secretly run the world. <laughs> Like I am the least successful of these people who've been through this program. It's just an amazing roster of people. And like, it'll take you a little bit of hunting around um, to, to find the stories that people tell about this process, but both, both positive and negative. Mm -hmm. But so that, you know, the bootcamp thing is, you know, a, there's that, this sort of deep connection to people. And then, you know, yeah, occasionally you need to like rally around particular uh, skills for us, it was like, what's your big idea that's going to change the way that our company or some uh, some other related industry does business? We put R and D into the hands of the these new kids. There are obviously risks to this strategy, and there's a bunch of adults at the company just rolling their eyes out of their head. <laughs> right? But we produced multiple different spinoffs, right? Like there actually were products that that then became sort of hit products for the company. That, that came out of this like willingness to just say, okay, great. That seems like a reasonable idea. Some of your ideas totally suck. You're going to have to fix those. You need to talk to people and learn something, but go. Here's, right. here's resources and belief, right? Because the bootcamp is three months. Mm-hmm. You have three months, make it happen. Right. Most of them would fail, but a couple of them would succeed. And then you're like, okay. Then the culture is just built, right? And, and mm-hmm. people go crazy for this thing. It became a, a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Right. It's amazing. So also kind of about your personal journey. I mean, how exactly did you make the, the transition from being out of school for seven years to doing your, you know, PhD <laughs> yeah, yeah. with Francis Arnold, sure. now you're a professor. I mean, obviously I know you're a smart person. You've had great mentors along the way, but like, what is it you think about you that has like enabled you to get to this place? Yeah. I mean, thank, thank you for asking it in that way. Um, Cause I think a lot of people, Today, there, you know, the 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 narratives are, you know, of course, I, I did have some great mentors, um, and they, it's reasonable to talk about things like the privileges that I was afforded. Um, I don't think that's why these things worked out in this particular way. Um, I think there's, there were structural things that helped me make these transitions, but, but uh, effectively, what happened is I didn't know what to do with my life, like many people, I didn't know what to do with my life in college. I said, dad, what should I major in? Um, and he's like, well, just do engineering because then everybody will assume you can do anything. It, 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 he was not being flip about it. And that's fantastic advice. It turns out to be totally true. 
right? You're just like, oh, you're practical and quantitative. And, you know, <laughs> it's great. It's, it's just a, such a door opener. I've never worked in, in actual engineering, right? I was a mechanical and aerospace engineer with a specialty in you know, control systems. Never done any of that stuff. I, I, I figured out relatively early on that I was never going to do that. Um, but so that gets you sort of flexibility. And then I, when I went to this company, I got my, my head changed by just the level of ambition and um, vision that these, these people had. I actually had a choice between two companies coming out of school. One, one was a 3D games company called Looking Glass Technologies in Boston, where I would be the second game designer in a, in a, in a company of 50 hotshot programmers. They actually did the first, they did something called System Shock, which is the first true 3D game. Right. There's Doom that everybody like had played at the time, which is sort of 2.5D. You could sort of pan up and down, which you couldn't actually look around. And these guys did the first full 3D one. So they're like totally hot shit and um, would sit around in these dark caves listening to 200 BPM music with their Metallica t-shirts and so on. And I'm like, I could totally do that. Like, that's my scene. I would love that. But I realized that I at this other company in Texas, like Austin, Texas, and I grew up in, in Massachusetts and Iowa, right? So I had nothing to do with Texas. Um, and it was, it was Fortune 500 sales and marketing software. Like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> but I met with the people and I'm like, holy cats. Like they just, I would go to Looking Glass and I would just become more me. I would go to Trilogy and become a changed person, right? Like I would grow in ways that I never anticipated. That turns out to be true. And like, you know, to jump basically to, to, to one of the end points of this, this story, like advice that I give every person who's like thinking about their, their career and where, where to go and what to do. I'm like, forget about the work itself. Put yourself in the presence of people you admire. You will become more like them mm-hmm. by this gravitational process. It is inevitable, right? Just get yourself near them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Get yourself the ability to work for them, to be mentored by them. And the, the work itself will, in most cases, of course, there are limits to this, but the, the work itself will largely sort itself out. Figure out what, what it is that makes them the person that you admire, right? And you will emulate it. Right. <laughs> it's, that has turned out to be like, at least for me, advice that I've taken myself and has really changed how I think about it, sort of career development in general. Because people really focus on the work or the pay or the location and stuff like this. It's like, if you have the luxury of ignoring those things, my goodness, choose the people. The people right. are everything. Right. So now, like I said, I didn't have a mentor at this company <laughs> who, was, who was telling me, um, you should become a scientist at all. <laughs> Instead, I would just go home every night from this like, super intense job. This was like 24-7, you know, people only dating inside the company, like cult-like culture, everything that you read about, like sort of your typical Silicon Valley startup was, was absolutely true here in, in Austin, Texas. And uh, but I'd go home and would read textbooks on quantitative biology, complexity theory, quantum mechanics, and so on. And I was filling journals, like the opening scene of Seven, if you've ever seen the Brad Pitt Pitt movie, yeah. like where the serial killer is just like writing <laughs> incessantly in these, you know, those little small scratchy marks in, in, in piles of notebooks. Like I really did that for years. And eventually I was like, this is ridiculous. My body is trying to tell me something. I'm like your HR advice to yourself, Drummond, is you are in the wrong job. So go, you know, make, don't do this as your night job. And did you switch the day job and the night job? Do HR at night. 
And so, you know, it's one thing. And I was annoying my family, telling them all my theories, right? You know, all the all the stuff that would just make you really terrified. Because remember, at that point, now I can look back, and, and everybody's like, "Oh, of course, it all worked out." But but looking forward, I mean, I I was making six figures, like mid six figures, at this company, and like there's no it was succeeding there was nothing about it i was excited about it there's you know i had support from my mentors i had a boss that i loved right but there was something missing from my life right right okay so the structural stuff that actually really mattered one i had been working a good job for a while right and i, I had no needs it turns out like i'm not a very materialistic person so my major expenses were textbooks and my, you know, I'm buying $75, $150 textbooks, <gasps> right? My friends are buying BMWs. <laughs> I, was not, I was not doing that. <laughs> okay. So, so I had financial flexibility. I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. Right. So I had the flexibility to really like consider options that many other people could not do. And, uh, but I didn't have any degree that I could, you know, my GREs had expired. And I'm applying to graduate school, kind of going, all right, if you're me, like, what would you do? I'm giving you an extended version of the story. You can interrupt me at any time if you don't want this, but this is like, okay, you know, this is awesome. This is how awesome. do you yeah. really, how do you navigate this? Like, what, how do you get yourself out of, of that situation into an academic situation? I'm like, okay, first thing, like, I'm no idiot. I'm a non-traditional applicant at this stage and age. Nobody has ever heard of me. I have no, my recommendation letters are going to come from the CEO and the vice president of human resources at this random <laughs> software company that nobody's heard of, right? Like, okay, I cannot just submit my application and pray. <laughs> Where would I even submit it to? <laughs> so the first thing I was like, okay, I have some financial resources. So I like, I went and just visited places like cold called professors and people and like just had coffee with them, right? And said, I'm interested in like artificial life, evolution, quantitative descriptions of, of, you know, how populations evolve and things like this, you know, complexity and it's deep stuff at some level, but I'm like, I have this notion that this can be, these questions can be rigorously asked. And I had a, a conception also that I read the literature and I just thought like many of these people are just sort of intellectually circling the drain. Like they're talking only to themselves. They're not having an impact they're working on the wrong stuff. Like the sort of level of descriptions that they've chosen and so on. I'm like, I can actually, I think I can outdo them at some level, right? Like I could mm -hmm. see the through line where I'm like, I can ask these questions in a way that's going to have a much bigger influence on like how we actually think about biological systems. All right. So, so flew myself to Santa Fe to the Santa Fe Institute and its, its uh, surrounding areas and looked up, you know, people like Mark Tilden who worked on, on robots and robot swarms and, and looked up Norm Packard um, who had, had since left the sort of artificial life community and started uh, the prediction company about predicting stock markets using particular theories that they had. And sitting down with Norm, it was like one of, you know, 100 conversations I had with, with people across the United States where um, I was like, do you know anybody who's, who's thinking about these sorts of issues? And he's like, you should look up Chris Adami at Caltech. Okay, so I look up Chris Adami at Caltech. I go fly out to Caltech. Right? Say, I'm in the area. Can I buy you coffee? Right? <laughs> And uh, I'm air quoting right now because I really was not, yeah. you know, they, I, I knew this is a psychological thing, right? Like if you, if you ask somebody, should I, can I fly out to, to California to meet with you? They're like, no, you're a crackpot. And they're like, what? <laughs> but if you say I'm here already, can you have coffee? They're like, sure. 
no problem, right? Like I'm really interested in your research. I'm going to take half an hour of your time, right? You know, so I have a have a great conversation with Chris. And one of the things I think you can tell is like, you know, know what you're good at. I can have a scientific conversation with somebody. If you just get me into their presence, then we can have a real conversation. It's all of the other stuff of like, if you, you know, if you're writing letters or filling out forms and stuff like this, I look like everybody else, but I knew if I just introduced myself to these people, I'd be like, look, I'm serious about this. I'm unusually passionate about this. I have not exactly the training that you want, but I am mature and decisive. <laughs> I can do things. I promise you. <laughs> so anyway, met with Chris, met with a bunch of other people at, at Princeton, also at Stanford. Cause I was like, I'm not going to quit my job, this posh job. Unless I get into someplace that I think is going to be a reasonable place to, to, to right. build a career. Applied to all those places. Of course, they all rejected me. And then I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't just cry. Like I <laughs> sobbed for days. <laughs> like <laughs> I was destroyed by this. And, and I realized, well, of course, why, which is that I, I had already made the change in my head. This was the future for me. I mean, I'm, I'm actually like crying now thinking about how hard this was, right? I was like, right. you know, I was done with my job. I was done with everything. And this, I was just trying to move on to this new life that, that, I, that I wanted so desperately. And then the answer was no, <laughs> you cannot right. do that. And so then I'm like, okay, well, how would I want to be treated? if I were on the receiving end of my applications. So I'm like, okay, I, I, I wrote back to the people that I had been in, in touch with, in, in, including Chris. And I said, I understand the decision and I don't want to change the decision because I, you know, uh, because I trust that you've made the right, you know, the, the right. right decision. Right. What can I do to improve my chances? I'm super passionate about this. What can I do to improve my chances the next time right. around? Right, with like real humility. And he's like, well, you know, what do you think happened? And I was like, well, I think I really screwed up my first interview. Caltech actually interviewed me, right? So they, they flew me out there. And, and you probably know if you, for grad school, if you get interviewed, the likelihood is, you know, 80% of people or so are going to get an offer. And I didn't. Um, and I consider myself somewhat charming. <laughs> so I'm just thinking, <laughs> thinking of the first, the first interview where I was given a brain teaser. Okay, if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, like, you know that A is greater than C, right? Fine. What if they're random variables? And I tell you the... the probability that A is bigger than B is greater than 50%. And the probability that C is, is B, B is greater than C is greater than 50%. What can you tell me about the probability A is greater than C? You can tell your, your uh, listeners to go look this up later, but I basically went B, 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 B. You know, I, I said some things, but it was clear like I didn't really distinguish myself in that, that interview. And then the rest of the interview was super softball. And you just look, what are your interests? And, and I, of course I'd done extensive reading over the two and a half years that I'd spent, you know, every night right. reading stuff. So yeah, you're like, Chris is like, well, I shouldn't tell you this, but behind the scenes, we had our faculty meeting and you met with half of the department plus one, right? It's like 13 people in the department. You met with seven and Shuki Brook, who was the person who had interviewed me. Um, everybody's like, yeah, we like, we like this guy. And Shuki was like, did, did anybody ask him anything technical? He comes from this really weird background. And they're like, no, no, we didn't. He's like, well, I did. And he's, he doesn't have the stuff. And I'm, I'm hearing the story and just going, okay, well, that's a fair conclusion from that interview. I had been tormenting new recruits for years with, <laughs> with brain teasers right in my own job. So I, like, I know exactly how that goes. Right. Um, 
but I'm like, but I don't really think that reflects my, my capability. I'm like, it's disappointing, but that's not something I can so much work on. I just have to do better in the interview the next time. Right. And Chris is like, you know, one, this may not be entirely hopeless. It was clear if like he felt I would be a good student of his because I had built a relationship with him. Right. Right. And so he said, well, you know, why don't we, he had conversations. And then I got a, an email from, from Stephen Quartz, who was the head of admissions. And he said, we're going to bring you back out for another round of interviews. So I went back for another round of interviews and I finished with the executive director of the department, Christoph Koch, who works on, you know, the neural correlates of consciousness. And he and I are sitting there like shooting the breeze about like great ways of thinking about consciousness and like how little work it actually does under some conditions and how much work it does under, under others because of like our shared interest in this particular book called the user illusion, which I really love. And that was it. Like I got asked no technical questions at all. And they reversed their decision. They admitted me that year. I was first in my class to go through quals. I got my PhD in four years, won the thesis prize and got my fellowship at Harvard. Cause it turns out I was much better at at science than I was at HR. That, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but so that was the, you know, the sort of looking back over this whole thing, mm-hmm. it was like, use the things that you have to get the things that you want. Don't take no for an answer, but try to do it with a great deal of respect. And I have no doubt, like if I re- was rejected again, you know, you just, you, you keep fighting the fight until you get it. But then the big question, back to your earliest things, like how in the world does this, does this really go? I had this super step function change in my life where of course, like anybody else, I'm thinking, do I belong here? I mean, talk about imposter syndrome. Right. In your, in your first year at, at Caltech, surrounded by a class of geniuses, right? I'm like some weirdo who's just been pulled out of nowhere. These people have been groomed. They are thoroughbreds, right? <laughs> right? And you're like, okay, I, you got to believe in yourself. You got to believe you, like you have a little bit of, of special sauce somewhere and, and you mm-hmm. try, to, try to run with it. I knew it was not going to be like my, my command of math, but I do have a, a certain physical intuition that turns out to be not that common. Right, right, right. That's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. Right. I mean, do you think the traditional path is like just somewhat overrated? Like, I feel that there needs to be more people with like, yeah, yeah. you're kind of, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, there's two. I think that's a really interesting question, right? Like, should we, should we make it more free, right? Like, what's the value of the training? So yeah, much like the, the bootcamp thing, I think a lot of the academic training focuses on stuff that is not quite right. There's a lot of rigorous focus on commanding material, which is very good if you want to do jobs that involve applying that, that material. But for the types of things that like I and my colleagues do, where we're like, we're into changing how people think in a particular field, there is no class for that. We're totally underprepared for that, right? Like you either, right. you, you develop your own way of doing that or not, but like, my command of biochemistry, I'm a professor of biochemistry, an associate professor of biochemistry now, right? Tenured at the University of Chicago. I have not taken a course in biochemistry, <laughs> right? Like it's just, <laughs> it, the training is not the thing. And so, yes, we should be able to uh, like kind of identify, I mean, this is, well, we're going we're gonna to go into a slightly controversial territory, but people overvalue the specific experiences that you've had and they undervalue the horsepower for doing particular tasks. And 
I am a perfect example of somebody who's just like, I've gotten to where I've gotten largely on being intellectually flexible, not by being well-trained. Right. Right. Eye on the ball, kind of like I can prioritize. I, I was, I was certainly trained well, but like not trained in the sort of stuff that you get trained for. <laughs> <I was trained>. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I would like more on-ramps for, for those sorts of people. I don't think that we should just like open our doors to any random person off the street. Like that's not how it works. That wasn't my story either. And there's probably like for every person who looks like me on paper, you know, the vast majority of them will fail out. They just like, they won't be able to learn the material. Like I found a through line where I could, you know, do stuff, but it was, I gotta say, like maybe somewhat special. I think there's, there's, there's this perspective of like, you have to have a certain amount of luck. I absolutely agree. This is true. I think over a lifetime, and even over, or, you know, over years that you spend in grad school and so on, like the luck is raining down on you. It's raining down on everybody. And by definition, it is not raining down on certain people and not other people, right? It's, you know, it, these are chance events. The people who are keeping their eyes open and seizing the luck when it arrives and trying to make something out of it, right? That's the hard thing to do. That's the thing that people don't train you for. It's like recognizing Yep. This is the moment you got to go. You got to go now. You got to like, you got to quit your job now. <laughs> You're not going to be able to do it later. <laughs> right? so, okay. So that's the one side of things is like, yes, we sh- I think we should be, we should stir the pot a little bit more and let people go between fields. Although I think we're pretty good at that. The other thing, this thing that I hold much more dear is that I think there are tons of people out there. Your listeners are likely among them who are constantly talking themselves out of making the big move. For, for reasons, because they're scared, because there's no template for it, because no one is encouraging them to do it. And, you know, I like spending some time telling my story specifically, not just because I like the sound of my own voice, although I do, <laughs> but also because I, I hope it emboldens people to be like, this can actually work. And if it doesn't work, it's going to work out in some other way, as opposed to just fail, right? Like I have this deep-seated perspective that like, it's not, you make the decision and then ask whether or not the decision was good. You make the decision and then you're like, okay, here I am. How am I going to take this situation I'm in right now and make it great? Right. That's how you live your life, right? That's how most of us actually live our lives. But we like worry so much about making the wrong decision. Just go. It's terrible that right. Nike, you know, <laughs> trademark that <laughs> phrase because it is in some, at some level, it is the phrase, right? Just right. Blur. Yeah. Just follow your gut and go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, you're also talking about this earlier, how, you know, you've had some great mentors, obviously at, at Trilogy and also um, Francis Arnold, I'm sure, was, sure yeah. was also amazing. I mean, like if you had to give like, you know, like, I guess like what's your, like, what's your mentorship or management style? And I guess like what general advice we'd have for, for someone starting like a lab, for instance, about like, yeah. how to go about doing that. I think you have like some unique thoughts on that maybe. For sure. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have had some spectacular mentors and I think that that really has put me in a, m- many people are trying to build a mentorship style while only having negative examples. <laughs> right? <And> that's really, <laughs> that is, that's a super difficult position for, for people yeah. to be in. I, I understand that. Um, and in my case, thinking about like what it was that I really appreciated about my mentors. So I had like, uh, the, I mean, the first thing is, get to know your people and be absolutely fascinated with, with them. Like just your interest in them builds trust. It 
um, allows you to motivate them because you know, one of the things that my boss taught me in the industry is you cannot motivate people. What you can do, except in the short term, I mean, you can flog people over a finish line occasionally, but like long-term, this just does not work, yeah. right? What you can do is unlock their own motivation, okay? So first, if you're staffing, you're going to try to staff people who are kind of what we call in, in, the, in the trade, constitutively active, right? Like people who are just at some level enjoy working, right? But when they, when they have that feature, how do you direct it in the, in the proper way? Well, it's like you learn something about them. You ask them questions. What do you want to, what do, you want to do? What interests you? Where are you going in your career? What have been your favorite experiences? What, you know, what things do you not like? Are you, are you looking to learn new things? Are you looking, you know, just have conversations with them. And then you're like, ah, okay, now I have a mental model of you. And now I'm going to build a project that takes advantage of your desires as well as your skills. And so then my motivation style is like, well, I'm just giving you what you want, <laughs> right? It's up to you to seize the apple, but like, it's, you know, it's, it's the one that you told me that you wanted. Uh, I think there's a, there's a huge role for short-term versus long-term thinking. So, um, one of the things that my boss back in at, at Trilogy did, we had a, we had a company meeting. I was in charge of the sort of production of the company meeting and all the videos that we're going to show the company. We grew from, you know, I joined, I was employee uh, 80 when I joined Trilogy. Uh, we grew to 1500 by the time I left. Right. So we're like, actually we're fairly large. And, uh, we, you know, had a, there's a hotel where like in the ballroom, we're doing, you know, starting the company meeting where, where I've like scripted everything and like taking care of all the AV and so on. And uh, the AV doesn't work. Like the videos don't work. Microphones, uh, the individual, the individual microphones work, but that's like it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, of course I go through the business of like trying to, I'm running around in front of 600 people and their spouses <laughs> 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 trying to make sure, trying to find some way to make it work. I could not solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It was the most public failure of my life. And so, you know, after this whole fiasco where the CEO then has to like deliver the company meeting without any of the stuff that we'd previously prepared, my boss, um, you know, we have a walk through the park. <laughs> we have a conversation. <laughs> this guy was the number two HR guy at Bristol Myers Squibb, right? 27,000 employees. He got passed over for the top job and came to our company. So he's like, he's an adult mm-hmm. and he's a professional. And he asks me how I think it went. And he asked me about the mistakes that I think I've made. And, you know, he's just in very even tone. Right. And it became clear in that conversation. He was not going to fire me. He just wanted to make sure I hadn't missed the lessons that I had learned from that incredibly painful experience. And then he had my, I had had his support. And of course, seeing that from him i was his i mean there's nothing i wouldn't do for that guy right like okay so now take that ethos that applies to every mistake every person in my lab has in principle made right (laughs) i can be upset with them and so on but like at some deep level i'm like if i just can be patient with them and help them to understand the different you know reflect reality right like sometimes you actually make mistakes but am have their back and and trying to encourage them like wow do they rally to your cause 
they just want to be believed in. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and like, I love my people. I just, I, I believe in them. <laughs> they, they turned out to be, of course, very different people than I initially think. And, you know, they're, they're people, but, but, but I love them. Right. And I think that that is you know, part of the, of the mentorship process is just like I said, just being fascinated with them. And then this last thing of like on the job training, like every moment is a training experience. Mm-hmm. That's where it happens. It doesn't happen in a class. There's no time when you're not getting trained. Like people have these, like we're going to have a mentorship conversation, right? No, you're not. Every conversation you have is a mentorship conversation. Mm-hmm. Do not focus your mentorship conversation on a form that happens once a year. Don't, it's not, not a meeting that you have that is distinct from the other meetings that you have. Every minute, your people right. are watching you. Right? <laughs> They're learning from right. you. They're listening right. to you. Right. right. You are their mentor. That's it. Right. That's the job. So like, how do you like then create projects that help them with a developmental stage that they're having trouble with, right. That are just right. close enough to something that where they've already succeeded, where you can give them the stepping stone or are a big enough stretch where you're like, you haven't failed enough. You should have much bigger eyes, right. For your project. I'm going to give you something that's totally nutballs and then watch them go then they're excited, right? (laughs) Sweet. Put me in. Right. Or the one who's like, just, you know, traumatized by failure. They're like, Oh, thank goodness. This is a task that I can do. Right. So you're, you're, you're moving the work around based on what you want, how you want your people to develop. That's, you know, that's thinking about those things constantly. That's the mentorship job. Right. Right. Oh yeah. Alan, that was no, no, no better way to end it. Um, A lot of wisdom in this conversation. So uh, really appreciate talking to you. Hey, this is super fun.